Am I okay now? Is it on? Okay, good. How do you teach social studies? Well, you put the book in front of them and tell them to go do their work. Well, it probably isn't going to cut it entirely, but it does make one point, and that is that there is a lot of work, and it's probably not all just going to be super exciting, super uh, fresh and new. Success is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. So there's probably not some magic cure for uh, your, your uh, social studies. might be boring, but it is important. Um, Social studies includes several different areas of study, primarily history, geography, those would probably be the primary ones, and along with that a study of nations and people, ethnic groups and political groups. Um, like Brother Edward was saying there, what you do in the wintertime going to the capital and uh, visiting the Capitol and seeing the legislature in session, that would come under social studies. Uh, building something about uh, an African country in your living room, that's social studies. You're studying people, you're studying cultures, you might study government, uh, you also study history. All of those things now come under the general term of social studies. So we're going to start off with just a little fun quiz here. This is to test your geography. And I have it up here on the board. Ten names, and these are geographical areas. They're not the names of a country or the name of a, a state or a city, but rather a region, it, it, something to do with geographical features. Um, so how many of you could tell me where to find these? That's the question. That's what the quiz is. Where are these found? How many of you think you could get all ten of them? Okay. How many could get at least one? Good. I already accomplished one objective. When you have a quiz, it should include at least a few items that they don't know yet. So hopefully you'll go home learning something today. Um, Well, for the sake of time, we're just going to go down real quickly here. Who can tell us where the Pampa is? Daryl. Somewhere in South America. Okay, that's right. 
Argentina, that's right. I remember that from grade school. You know why? Because I did a report on Argentina. And this was part of it. I learned what the pampa was. How many of you ever heard of pampas grass? Ah, no, see? We have a little more Argentina than we realized. That comes from the pampa. You put an S on here, it's pampas is plural. It's a grassy region. Number two, the outback. Where is that? That's Australia. Number three, Punjab. See one hand. Okay, Tyler. Very good. Number four, Great Plains. Who can tell us where are the Great Plains? Okay, that's in that. South Dakota is in the Great Plains. It's a little broader than that. It's the whole grassland region just on the east side of the Rockies. Several hundred miles out, that whole area is called the Great Plains. Number five, step. Anybody? I'm just guessing Tibet in that region, China. Uh, no. Dana. That's right, Russia. Step, if you look it up, it has a general definition of a grassland, a treeless prairie. But generally, when you use this term, it's referring to a specific region in Russia called the steppe. Number six, Great Barrier Reef. Somebody? Lisa? Yes, just off the coast of Australia. Number seven, Belt. What you're standing on. <laughs> Okay, this is not German. <laughs> yes, Southern Africa. Eight, Boreal Forest. Anybody? Nobody? Not sure about that. <coughs> Northwest, uh, no, not quite. Oh, I have my cheat sheets and things I do, okay? I remembered there's a certain forest. I couldn't remember the name, so I had to look it up. So I found what I wanted and that was boreal forest. It is uh, actually the largest single forest area in the world. So you ought to kind of fix that in your mind, maybe. But it's uh, in the northern regions, like 
northern Canada, and it's all primarily conifers, like uh, pine and spruce and so on. But northern Russia, Siberia, for example, has vast areas of boreal forest as well. But they actually together comprise a larger forest area than the rainforest area. That brings us next one, tropical rainforest. Where's that? Who wants to guess? Daryl? Yes. There's also vast areas in Africa, but 10, the Piedmont. Very good. That's right. Okay, you learned something new? I hope so. Social studies doesn't have to be boring. We've heard that at our house already. Well, my book is so boring. Well, hey, there's interesting things. If you like to learn, there's always something interesting to learn. I, I enjoy, well, I always enjoyed social studies in school is one of my favorite subjects, but even now, I enjoy lists of biggest, greatest, longest, fastest, highest, you know, what's the most, the least, the whatever. Doesn't that kind of fascinate? Well, let's do just a few more here. Um, This is another geography one. Uh, we're going to guess we can leave our numbers here. We want to list the islands that are the largest. List them in order of size. Number one is the largest island in the world. Who can tell us what the largest island in the world is? Uh, wrong. Yes, Greenland. Number one. What's number two? No, Australia ranks as a, what is it? Continent? Okay, we got the largest, Greenland. What's number two? Uh, no, I think Sumatra ranks number, let me see here. I think that's number four. I guess I wrote it down here. Nope, sorry, doesn't rank here in the first five. I think that might be number six. It ranks in the top ten at least, but... That's right. <laughs> well, that's how it just goes by the name New Guinea. It actually has two 
two divisions to it, two sides of it, but uh, what ranks third? Anybody want to venture a guess? Japan. Nope. That one ranks third. What about fourth? That is correct. And number five. You really get bonus points if you get this one. What's that? Yes. That's very good. You can tell the rest where that one's found if they don't know. Um, one more. Maybe I'll just do this verbally. What country? Well, let's list in order of population of English-speaking people in a country. Starting with the country that has the most English-speaking people. And we're going to list the first three, if we can. Nations in the world with the largest English-speaking population. Do you follow the question? This one's really fun. Is it an Arabian country? Wait, number one? Yeah. No. Is it England? No. US? US. What's number two? India. By the way, my family doesn't count because we've done this. India. Yes. India is number two. And what's number three? Oh, Tyler, you don't count either, sorry. <laughs> Anyone guess? Pakistan. And you need to know a little of your history to know why that ranks third. Okay. Last question I'll just do verbally. Where is the Sea of Tranquility and what major historical event took place there? My family can't answer. (laughs) 
Where is the Sea of Tranquility and what major historical event took place there? Okay, now now you want to study your. Well, I don't know where it is, but it sounds like a nice place to be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't plan to go there. If you think you know, go ahead. Yes, that's right. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> well, that was kind of a tricky one there. But. Yes, the Sea of Tranquility is where the first lunar landing was and men first walked on the moon. Sea of Tranquility. Well, those are the type of things we do once in a while at our house. It's not every day, but once in a while we like to just try to stretch everybody's thinking a little bit. We're studying history, geography, study of nations and people, ethnic and political, and some of our primary tools now we have primary tools and secondary tools, and of course the primary ones are going to be your textbooks. Those kind of are the framework, unless you have the time to draw up a fresh lesson every day for your children, which probably we don't, and we wouldn't be very thorough if we did. Books are very important. Textbooks keep us on track. <clears throat> Other primary tools are maps, a globe, timelines, as well as historical records. And then what I would list as secondary tools are books, which could be biographies uh, or stories, encyclopedia and reference books, and games of historical or geographical nature. Uh, there are some very good games out there that are more, probably more educational than recreational, but they have a little recreational part in there that makes them very interesting. And it's a very good tool to learn geography and history and those kind of things, and it's, you know, you, you might do it evenings for family time or whatever, but you're actually doing school. Um, books, very important uh, biographies. You know, at our house, we've listened to... Um, the audio tapes from Otto Koning, who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. 
and a lot of what we would know geographically about New Guinea that, well, they've got swamps there and they've got some nasty snakes and they've got uh, tropical problems and they've got mountains and rivers and all that's just what you kind of pick up when you listen to the story. Same thing happens when you're reading biography books about missionaries in other nations. You might learn a little bit about the geography and type of people, ethnic things about that country. And those are all parts of social studies. So what I'd like to... um, emphasize is don't underestimate the value of what we might call secondary uh, tools for learning social studies. I don't know, some of you, maybe many of you use uh, the social studies books. We do. We use uh, Christian Lights. They have some God's World, His Story. That first came out when I was back in grade school. I had it when I was in eighth grade, I believe it was. And they've come out with several new books in in subsequent years, but that still kind of forms the backbone of their social studies curriculum. And it's very good in that it, it gives a biblical emphasis on history and geography. And that's very important, but the curriculum does have a few weaknesses, and I'll mention those later, but let's think about the importance of a biblical view. When it comes to history, none of us can know all there is to know about history. It's just too much. So there's always a selection process as to what is the most important points of history. And there are some that we would all agree, I think, are major points of history that should be learned. But if the ungodly are the ones who always select the points that they think are most important to be taught, is that going to come out right? And I say, no, it's not going to come out right if the ungodly are the ones who select the points of history that are most important. Now, some points of history may be neither here nor there necessarily, but oftentimes, and I see that more and more in the in the more modern books, they focus on obscure people and oftentimes wicked people and give them great prominence and lift them up as honorable and having done some great thing. And the people that God would call great and that we should view as role models are just either ignored or forgotten. So there is an important reason for having a biblical worldview when we look at history. 
and, and a study of people and nations. One of the reasons for nations and, and empires, uh, societies to decline is because of their wickedness. And you won't hardly read that in a secular textbook. But God sets up people whom he will and he puts down whom he will. And, you know, you can study the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and see it was largely because of the wickedness of the people and they finally went into obscurity. So there's good reason to select a biblical view for history and even our study of of nations and people so that we're not... um, we don't swallow the world's view at, at these things of history and so on. So Christian Light did a very good thing, a very noble thing. Um, I would say one of the weaknesses in their textbook is to... I'm I'm not sure how to say it, but students can come through that curriculum without having a clear grasp of how things all relate to each other in time sequence and even geographically. You all study about this and that and the other place, but I think it it needs a little bit of help to draw it together. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's w- several tools that I think are, are nearly indispensable for us to get a good grasp is things as simple as maps and a globe, which, you know, a map is just... A, or a a globe is a a particular kind of map. But to be able to just visually see things and see how they relate to each other and in distance and area and and where they are in the world, um, I think it's valuable. It's, It's important. I would highly recommend that you have those around at all times. Put up a world map somewhere in your house just to be there as a point of reference. You don't have to develop a curriculum around it necessarily, but have it available just there for daily reviews. You walk past it or you have a discussion at the dinner table and you ask him some challenging geographical questions. Well, hey, can I run over to the map and look? No, no, you wait. <laughs> you answer this if you can, and, and then you can go to the map and verify it or whatever. Um, have them available. I'm not, I don't think there's a perfect 
social studies curriculum out there. We might wish there were, but it probably all of them are going to need a little help one way or another. And a lot of these other maybe secondary things that you can do will round out uh, perhaps what's missing in the, in the curriculum. Also, I'd like to say a lot of what we learn, what I've learned, I can't necessarily think back to time in grade school that I specifically studied these things. I would think of this first list we have there of 10 regions of the world. A few of them, maybe up to half of them, I can remember having studied in school. The other half I, I learned somewhere through, through life. And, but in preparing for this, even this list, I double-checked, I checked my references, I found things that I couldn't quite remember, and, and you know, to put this whole list together. So it's not like I go around with all of these things, you know, firmly tucked in my mind. I just, I know where I can go to find what I need, and, and I, I check these references and so on. So, Utilize those, what I might call secondary things, your encyclopedias, your um, reference books, even biographies. Um, but before I get away from the primary tools, talked about maps, a globe. Another profitable thing is timelines. And timelines can come in various sizes. Many of you possibly remember the big one we had up here, and I still have it at home, thought of bringing it, but it doesn't have to be elaborate like that. It can be just a couple sheets of paper, but it can be a very good exercise for the students to fill in major historical events on a timeline because it gives you a visual reference of how, you know, the when certain things happened. As I know back in grade school, you know, something that happened a hundred years ago may have been easy to confuse with something that happened a thousand years ago. It just kind of all, that was all back there, you know. And that's how it is often for a student growing up. You know, it's, it all gets lumped back there and you don't really realize that this history is just past and the other point of history is 2,000 years ago. Also, speaking of timelines... If you recall, it started over there where that hook is on the wall and it went all the way over to that hook. 
And if I remember correctly, the, the birth of Christ, the time of Christ, was somewhere about right in here by the board, which is 4,000 years of history and 2,000 plus since then. So if you're looking at the whole scope of history, what one book would you select as the most thorough and accurate record of history, social studies? It's the Bible. There is none that would compare in scope, in content, and yes, there are historical things outside of the biblical record, and some of them could be fairly accurate, but the Bible is the point of reference and is also the greatest, uh, probably in, in the amount of information as anything else that's out there. So, don't think that geography and history just are all separate from Bible. They, they tie in there and should be a good part of our curriculum because truly God is the author of geography and he's also the one who rules over history. He set it in motion. He orchestrates things in history, and he's the one who's going to see it to the end. Geosafari, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that little kind of a game thing that you have multiple cards you can put in, and I see some, some of you nodding your head. And Our children will say, well, most of what we know about social studies, we learn on geosafari. <laughs> well, again, it's one of those sort of fun things. You can, you know, it's, it's educational. It's almost a game. It, it keeps their interest, and it's usually just in very small segments, 10 or 12 items, uh, but you might learn anything from presidents to geography to other famous people in history, and, and again, most of that is from a secular viewpoint, so you need to be careful, and it can start with very simple things like... Um, shapes and colors and whatever, things that have nothing to do with social studies. But the GeoSafari system does have a lot of resources for these kind of uh, topics. When you're evaluating your curriculum, Several questions to ask yourself is, does it give a good overall grasp of history and also of, of geography? And if it doesn't, 
then try to fill in the blanks with other resources or somehow bring it together so that your student can be reminded of it. Uh, it can be done with maps or timelines, other quizzes and, and those kind of things. Uh, and if, if you're afraid they're missing it, well, you don't stop learning when you put the books away. <laughs> you can learn at the dinner table and you can learn after you've graduated and got your diploma and your GED and when you're teaching your children, you'll learn new things again and have them refreshed in your own mind. And, and it's, it's helpful to keep, keep learning with your students. Another thing we've done is the 20 questions game. Any of you know how to play that one, 20 questions game? Sure. Well, <clears throat> it works like this. The person who, like I will think of a certain person, a place, a thing, and I'll say, okay, I have something in mind. And then you begin to ask questions that can be answered by yes or no. And in 20 questions, you should have been able to narrow it down and actually guess what I had in mind. Um, I could select, let's say I select a person, a historical person. It could even be someone who's alive today. But, okay, I have a certain person in mind. Okay, then... It takes a little bit of skill, and you soon catch on when you start, uh, you know, you first you start by asking the question, is that person alive? Um, no. Okay, so that means it's someone that's no longer living. And next question you might ask is, did they live before Christ? Uh, no. Okay, that's, they're not from any historical record before Christ. They're sometime no longer living now, but they're living after Christ sometime. So each question is designed to narrow the field. And the person that's skillful in asking questions almost invariably narrow it down to one and guess what you what you have in mind. And one I, I remember, and we had it here for our historical night, was it historical night, I think, or um, yeah, history night, we had the, the mystery question, what What was the greatest land empire in world history? Um, 
Well, it was the Mongolian Empire, and, and uh, Genghis Khan was the founder of that empire. One day, out of the blue, I just, we did this 20 game, 20 question game, and I selected uh, Genghis Khan as, as the one, and I suspected they probably couldn't name him. But in the space of 20 questions, they had narrowed it down to a prominent world leader in a certain era of time, which was correct, and they knew they didn't know his name. <laughs> but in 20 questions, they had come that close and were able to, you know, you would say, well, they were stumped. Well, yes, but they had narrowed it down to the time and era, but that was all the further they could go. So we've used that for everything from objects in the house to historical figures in the Old Testament to modern politicians to spacecraft out there somewhere and be very interesting anyway. Well, I know my time is up. I'm not sure if I've given, I hope I've given you some encouragement. Social studies can be very interesting, fascinating facts. I have this little pocket world and figures. I have no idea where we got this, but it's just a very handy little reference book, and it ranks things. Um, nations and countries, um, largest countries, highest mountains, longest rivers, largest deserts, largest lakes, largest islands. By the way, what's the largest lake in the world? Anybody know? Freshwater lake, largest freshwater lake in the world. Nope, that ranks number two. Good guess. No, not at least as far as, uh, actually that one ranks number seven. And in this particular case, they're talking about surface area. I think there is a difference if you were to rank by volume of water, it would not be the same as surface area. So this particular list is surface area. Father? That's number three. That's number three. Number one is the Caspian Sea. Anyway, 
This is a reference I checked for largest islands. It lists them. Largest populations, fastest growing, slowest growing, and so on down the list. In this particular book, you can also have the economic Big Mac index, comparing the price of a Big Mac in various nations of the world, where it's most expensive and where it's least expensive. That might not be all that important. What's the name of the book again? Pocket World in Figures. This is the 2008 edition. I'm guessing they probably publish it every year. I don't know. But. There's other places you can find lists like this. Um, what is a World Almanac has lots of records and details and information, lists about every nation in the world and, and so on. Well, I know my time is up, I guess. I don't know. Did you want to close here? Elvin, I'll just turn it over to you.